You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of 1 Kings. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. All right, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 19, if you can believe that. Oh man, can't write this stuff. You remember that... uh, Chapter 18, we saw the victory uh, of the Lord and, and uh, that Elijah got to be a part of, the victory on Mount Carmel, where you know Elijah just said, you know what, enough is enough. If Baal is God, then follow Baal. But if Yahweh is God, then follow Yahweh. And he basically drew a line in the sand on that on that mountain as he led uh, the people up on Mount Carmel, 450 priests of Baal, false priests, and, uh, and against one man, Elijah. When you guys know the story where they, you know, they each had their turns, the Baal prophets to call down fire from heaven and, uh, and have their altar consumed versus Elijah having his moment to call down fire from heaven and uh, the uh, prophets of Baal got to go first. They went all day and almost all afternoon and nothing happened and nothing happened after they danced and shouted and cut themselves and cried out. And finally, Elijah just started mocking them saying, you know, your God must be on a business trip or he must be going to the bathroom, you know, and he just began mocking uh, these false prophets and then finally said enough is enough and and uh, he rebuilt the altar uh, that Israel once used in worshiping Yahweh, dug a trench around it, filled it with many pots full of water, dumped water all over the sacrifice, called down fire from heaven, and the fire came down immediately and consumed the sacrifice and consumed the stones and consumed the dust and the water and everything around it. It was all lapped up. love the language there, lapped up by the fire proving that Yahweh was God. And it was there that Israel, for a minute, (laughs) had a revival, for a minute. And they called out on, you know, that that surely Yahweh is God. And then uh, Elijah said, don't let the prophets get away. Don't let one of them escape. And he took them down uh, to the brook there in the Jezreel Valley and, and chopped off their heads, basically. I know, graphic, I apologize, but, you know. Uh, And then we saw him after that, you know, uh, praying and and rain came again after a three and a half year drought just an incredible time of victory for elijah except he began to uh, be depressed and oftentimes after an incredible time of victory there's seasons of depression as he went down and and went down to um the southernmost part of israel with his servant and left his servant there and then went all the way down even farther many days journeys to mount sinai where he just wanted to die. He was so depressed and discouraged. And, um, but the Lord encouraged him there and provided food for him there and, and you know, encouraged him in the Lord and said, I still have a ministry for you. And so there is where we left off in chapter 19 where the Lord said, go in verse um, 15 of chapter 19, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, which was clear back up at the north end of Israel. Uh, so go back up north 
And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Now I've re- yet I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so uh, verse 19, we see him going back on his way and he does one of those things that he was commanded to do. Uh, and we read of the anointing of Elisha in verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. So here we have Elisha, a man uh, with a wealthy background, 12 yoke of oxen. You know, and the language reads that he was using a line uh, of 24 oxen on one plow. You know, basically he had a, a new $100,000 John Deere, you know, with a family farm, you know, and uh, a successful uh, establishment, apparently. And just kind of an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting read here. Man's out plowing with 12 yoke. I mean, it's something you don't even see in movies, you know, 12 yoke plowing. And a guy just walks up and throws his mantle on him and automatically you're like, Wow. That must hurt, you know. I don't even know what a mantle is, but you know, I have one in my house, and um, Santa's going to come down, come down it pretty soon. But uh, a mantle was basically the outer garment that uh, it was a symbol. Prophets wore a symbol of their authority, and so he just kind of walks by and, and casts his mantle on this man who's plowing, and it was basically just a symbol of Elijah passing on his prophetic authority or his ministry being passed on to Elisha. Now, it wasn't going to happen right then and there that, you know, Elijah's done, Elisha's uh, now the, the man, but it was, it was a call to discipleship. It was a call to come and to follow me. So Elisha is, is made his successor by that mantle being thrown on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And so, you know, just kind of odd. Just tosses his mantle on him and walks off. <laughs> and the guy had to actually, like, leave his oxen and run after Elijah. He ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? The New Living Translation puts it this way. Go on back, but think about what I've done to you. Think about what just happened here. You know, Elijah was a famous guy. People knew who he was. They knew what was going on. And, uh, and, and for this to happen, you know, it, it was no small thing. And, you know, he just encourages Elisha, you know, think about what I've done to you. And so... Verse 21, so Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment 
and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So just a symbol here in verse 21 of Elisha giving up his, his life, giving up all that he has, actually killing it. You know, he's giving up all that he has to follow hard after Elijah. You could say that he's offering up his life here as a living sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, just a, a beautiful verse. I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before God, which is your reasonable service. Paul pleaded with the Romans that their bodies, that their lives, that everything that they were, that these temples of the Holy Spirit would be no more about Rory, you know, would be no more about Frank, would be no more about Barb or Eddie or Ron or anybody. It's no longer about me. My life has now been offered up. But get this as a living sacrifice. You know, sacrifices in the Old Testament were pretty brutal. <laughs> you know, and when you read this, he went back and slaughtered the oxen. You know, I mean, it wasn't the most beautiful thing to see. Some of you have grown up on farms or have killed an animal. And, and to dress it out is, uh, you know, there's, there's some, some gore there, <laughs> you know. And so our lives, it's a, it's a painful picture of, of all out getting rid of everything of us that would keep us from following hard after the Lord. And that's why Paul says in Galatians, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. You know, it's no longer I who live. You know, I've been crucified, but I live. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're new creations in Christ. It's no longer about me or, or what I want to do. But when God calls you, all out abandon, you know, is required. You know, giving up the, the families, giving up the, the money, the job, the retirement. Um, one of my dear friends in Corvallis, Kurt is the administrative pastor in Corvallis. And, uh, he was, um, a nuclear engineer for the Navy in Seattle. And I think he had something like four years left till he'd retire when he got the call to go into full-time ministry. And so he left Seattle and went down to California and went to the Calvary Bible College. And ever since then, he's been the administrative pastor in Corvallis for about, oh, I think it's been like 10 years or more, a little more than that. And I always just am so encouraged by that example of, it's not about the money. It's not about the comfortable last years of my life. You know, it's not about the big home and the fancy cars and all of that. It's about pouring out my life for Jesus. You know, and, and when you work with animals, you get kind of close to them. You know, I had a horse growing up named Here and There, you know, and we called her that because she was so fast. She went here and she went there, you know, and a, a Mustang that I broke off the Nevada desert named Noble. Love that animal and to think about working and moving cattle with these animals and then to just grab my knife and just be like, whoosh, you know, and then take its saddle off and light the leather on fire and cook it. And I mean, it's like, wow, are you really asking me to do this? You know, 
all out giving up of ourselves for all out following of Jesus. So, and I always love, I have a friend named Willie who lives in Ben now and I led him to the Lord and I was helping him memorize scripture. And when he memorized Romans one, you know, I'd be like, I beseech thee therefore brethren by the mercies of God. And I always, it's in my mind. I beseech ye therefore brethren. I plead with you brethren, Calvary Crook County people, myself included, let's offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice before the Lord, holy and acceptable for Elijah, his wealth, his inheritance, his way of life. It was all given up so that he might follow passionately with reckless abandon. Very commendable action. If you were to make an altar and offer up a sacrifice tonight, what would be on that altar? What's the Lord calling you to sacrifice or to do without? But the very real fact of biblical discipleship is that there is a cost. And that cost is all or nothing. All or nothing with reckless abandon. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And you just see Elisha here carrying up his cross to follow after Elijah, to to, to be part of what God was doing. Flip over to Luke chapter 9, verse 57. There's just a few passages in the Gospels that, that it's similar to what uh, Elijah and Elisha were going through. Luke nine fifty seven, and it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, the path of following Jesus is not always comfy cozy all the time. And then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus wasn't, you know, being uncompassionate or however you'd say that lack of lacking compassion here uh but it was much more than a my dad died this morning and i just need to go and take care of some stuff but it was a it was a, a long drawn out process you know and involving getting the inheritance and perhaps the father wasn't even dead yet but he was on the brink of being dead and as soon as i just take care of this stuff here then i'll follow after you with all that i am jesus and another verse 61, another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me go first and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And you know what that is right there by Jesus? That's a reference of Elisha. 
Knowing no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I like to use that for people, you know, Calvary Chapel Corvallis. We call it the Calvary handshake. And it's guys coming up and starting to rub your back, you know. And as they start rubbing my back, I'm like, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven, man. You better keep rubbing because I'm a little tight right there. But um, so, you know, might be taking it out of context a little bit, but got a little whiplash. So, you know. No one putting his hand to the plow and getting into the labor and looking back, wishing, man, I'd like to go back to that other life. It was a whole lot easier. They're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. The story is a famous historical story. In 1519, the Spanish conquistador Hernando, Hernando Cortez landed in Mexico on the shores of the Yucatan with only one objective, seized the great treasure hoarded by the Aztecs. And Cortez was known to be a very convincing orator. Somehow he was able to convince 500 soldiers and 100 sailors to accompany him across the Atlantic with 11 ships and to to land their boats there in Mexico uh, at the base of the Yucatan. And uh, as they landed on the shores, he gathered all of the sailors and all of the soldiers together and he started doing this one great big speech before they charged off into the you know wilderness to capture their gold and as he was just at the height of the passion of his speech he yelled burn the ships <laughs> and he was met with a little bit of resistance why what are you talking wait hold on let's not, you know and he again said burn the ships and he said if we burn the ships then it's all-out victory for us or death. Our level of engagement has gone up a few notches now. And he said, if we sail home, it won't be in our ships, it'll be on their ships. And it just sparked this level of commitment that, man, either we conquer and get what we came here for, or we're going to die in this land apart from our families. And you know what? They were powerhouses in conquering the Aztecs and getting that gold that they wanted. In the same sense, Elijah, or excuse me, Elisha, don't you just love that those names are just a couple letters away from each other? Elisha's basically saying, you know what? My past life, it's done. I'm burning it. I'm not coming back to it. You know, it's, it's reckless abandon, pursuing the Lord. I have nothing to fall back on. I'm a new man with a new mission. And then if you're still there with your finger in Luke, just flip over to chapter 14, verse 25. You know, when we're called to be disciples of Jesus, which everyone in this room has, and as I look around, I'm like, I'm I'm seeing people that are living lives of disciples. But it's just a good daily reminder that, you know, as, as we're called to be disciples, we need to count the cost. We need, like Elijah did. And and or Elisha, and in verse 25 there in Luke 14 says, Great multitudes went with them, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Hate my mother, hate my brother. What? Man, the love that we have for Jesus should be so all out 
all of our energies, everything we have, our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our love for him should be so vast that love for our mother, which is great, or love for our wives, which is great, seems like hatred in comparison. And that guy loves his wife, and man, he lavishes her with affection, but he loves his Jesus <laughs> with all that he is. He, man, his money is Jesus's. His time is Jesus's. All that he is is Jesus's. It's practically a hatred in comparison. And then he goes on to say, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, and all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish? Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Man, are you giving up your hopes for Jesus? Are you giving up your dreams? You know, there's a song we sing. It's, I surrender all to you, all to you. I'm giving up my rights for the promise of new life. Everything I have, I'm giving it up. I'm carrying my cross. Rory's dead. There's a new Rory that's all for Jesus. And it's a hard saying, though, to count the cost. It's a hard saying. And I just know that I need to examine myself and just consider what needs to go on the altar. Because following Jesus is so much more than a one-time raising of your hand at a Billy Graham conference or at a Greg Laurie Harvest crusade. You know, following Jesus and being saved is more than that one-time response. It's all-out following. It's counting the cost. If I'm going to follow Jesus, then I no longer can go party with these people. And I no longer can uh, get drunk and, and smoke weed and, you know, have sex outside of marriage. I can't do these things that I once did. And as I raise my hand to accept Jesus, I need to count that cost that I'm willing to give up those things for him. I'm willing to allow him to transform my mind. Not brainwash, but... You know, as you spend time with him, you begin to realize that you were brainwashed. (laughs) And Jesus will just scrub and do an actual washing of your brain and change you and allow you to see truth. In John chapter 6, verse 65, it says, And he said, Therefore I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my Father. And then listen to that. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Could you imagine? You've been with Jesus. You've been with the incarnate deity. You've been with the creator. You've seen his miracles and you've seen his 
love and his compassion and his example. And yet many people, and they were called disciples that were following him, turned away and and followed him no more. And verse 67 there in John 6, then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Where else should I go? (laughs) I'm plowing with oxen. I'm stepping in 12 yoken of oxen's material that I'm walking over, you know, man, I've got poo-poo on my boots, you know, it's like, what else should I do? Continue on doing this or follow after doing your, the call on my life, Lord. I choose you. Where else should I go? You have the words of eternal life. Should I continue on in this lifestyle of pleasure that soon is going to fade away and I'm going to have to reap the consequences of? You know, should I continue on in this business practice, which, you know, which if you're called to it, that is awesome. And that's where you have. But if you're called to something else and you're continue on in that venture, then you're, you're missing out on the great plan that God, God has for you. And so I just love this story of Elisha just running back killing a couple oxen, burning them, sacrificing them, having kind of a goodbye feast with his family and catching back up uh, there with Elijah. And then at the end of verse 21, then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Became his servant from that point on. And I just love reading about this. And there's other men who've been in this same situation. In Mark, you don't have to flip there because you all know it. Mark chapter 1, Jesus is walking alongside the Sea of Galilee and he sees Simon or Peter and Andrew fishing. And he just shouts out there on the Sea of Galilee, hey, come follow me. You know, I'll make you fishers of men. What compelled these men? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) you know, I'm kind of, you know, when people approach me, I'm a little bit like, no thanks, you know. I got home from um, a meeting last week and there were these two young men in a meat truck selling frozen meat packages of meat, you know, and as I'm driving along, I see one of them come from my doorstep and, uh, and then there's another guy at another house. I'm like, oh, okay, Lindsay just took care of him, you know, and as I park, you know, he's like, hey, do you like steak? And I'm like, can't lie to you, man. <laughs> Love me some steak, you know, he's like, well, hey, come on over. I want you to see these packages that I've got. I'm like, I think my wife, the accountant of the family is already already given you our answer, you know, but I'm like, ah, I can only imagine how people feel when I come to share Christ with them. Hey, you want to hear about Jesus? <laughs> no, um, no thanks. But, um, you know, so, hey, come, I'll make you fishers of men. Kersplash, you know, as they come out of the boat. <laughs> Which way do we go? Which way do we go? You know, Peter says, you know, and then they walk, you know, a few more feet and there's James and John, you know, mending nets and you know jesus might as well have said come and i'll make you menders of men because that's what their ministries were menders of men and and uh you know these guys just 
all right, you know, who cares about the family boat? Is it just goes like sailing out to sea all by itself, you know? You know, Levi, who became known as Matthew, Jesus started calling him Matthew. Levi was a tax collector and the Jews hated him. You know, and he was there counting the money one day, 20, 40, 60, 80, you know, <laughs> using his little slide rule, you know? Come, follow me. Just the most simple, just the most simple commands. Come, follow me. And it says, 20, 40, 60, 80, <laughs> just starts following him, just gets up with reckless abandon. And I just love that. And I know that, you know, it's Wednesday night, you know, 90% of us, you know, probably following hard after the Lord or 99% or hopefully 100%. But man, if you're wavering, just I encourage you, burn the ships, <laughs> you know, I encourage you, burn the TV, or, or burn those friendships that are dragging you down. Burn that hobby. Burn whatever it is so that you have that next level of commitment. There's no going back. And you know, that's what's so good about fasting. You know, because for fasting, you take a certain amount of time and you say, okay, Lord, I'm going to go without food here. I'm going to set aside my physical needs to focus on the spiritual because that's how much I need you. And man, you never know you're hooked on food until you fast for a few, few days. And you realize, I am so hooked on food right now. I just need some, you know. And, uh, but then there's that one day that you're no longer hungry. You haven't eaten in three days and you're not hungry. And the Lord just says, you know what? I'm enough for you. Let me be that satisfaction. You know, you, you give up those nights in front of the TV for a season and just see how much it's been controlling you or give up, you know, a season with the hobby or whatever and just give it to the Lord and say, Lord, if this is something that, that owns me and you want me to get rid of, I get rid of it. And, um, you know, the interesting, remember the story of the rich young ruler and just how he came uh, to Jesus and said, Lord, what must I do to, to follow you? And Jesus said, just, you know, keep the commandments. And he said, oh, I've done all that. And then he says, well, then give all that you own, sell it, give it to the poor and follow me. And the rich young ruler was sad because of that, because he had great possessions and he didn't want to do that. And the interesting thing is we studied it a few weeks ago, maybe if he would have said, no problem, Lord, it's all yours, that the Lord would have said, Hey, you know what? Keep it <laughs> because your heart is right. You can have the riches and I know you're going to use it for me and it's not going to be your God. But it was proved on that day that those things were his God. And so, man, just a charge to us to not let those things or those peoples or those practices um, be our God. And uh, we're going to dive into chapter 20. It's going to be a quick, uh, quick study. Uh, in 1973, on the Day of Atonement, which is the holiest day of the year for the Jews, Syria launched a surprise attack while Israel was fasting and praying. Thousands of tanks crossed again, uh, cross, came across the Golan Heights, and at the war's outset, Israel had only 188 tanks against 2,000 Syrian tanks. The Syrians outnumbered the Israelis nine to one. And there was a miraculous battle. Legends were born and heroes were made. 
And God's providence led to, to Israel's miraculous victory. There was a guy named uh, Vika Greengold who had, he was a tank driver and he maneuvered his one and only tank to single-handedly hold off an entire tank battalion with one tank. His, his trick was this. He had uh, a radio conversation with himself <laughs> where he pretended to be having tactical conversations with his tank battalion with a made, it was a made up name called Zwicka force. And he's there and he's, yeah, come around their back flank. We're coming around their back flank. Okay. Now we need the other 170 tanks to come up on their right. Okay. We're coming around. You know, and he's just having this pretend conversation with himself and the Syrians heard this and they were just, Oh my gosh, they've got us outnumbered. And so they totally fought very coward, you know, with much cowardice and eventually retreated and ran. And all of the Israeli tanks and the Israeli troops were able to chase the Syrians back into their territory within 20 miles of Damascus. And some of you were alive to see that and to hear that. And uh, it's just crazy because to this day, you just see God's mighty hand upon Israel in in the Six-Day War against Egypt and just incredible battle tactics. Uh, The Israeli army and air force, they're a force to be reckoned with probably because they've got God on their side. But the interesting thing is, is we're going to read here in chapter 20, uh, the conflicts between Israel and Syria, you know, that, you know, probably 20 or let's see here, 2000, about 2,900 years ago or something like that, roughly, uh, there was still war between Syria and Israel. And today there's still war between, uh, Hezbollah and Syria and Lebanon in Israel, and we just remember this last year, the, the big battles, the rockets being launched into Israel. And so it's crazy. Just like it was back then, uh, it is now. And so we're going to read about that back then. Uh, now, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. So, in chapter 19, verse 15, we read that Elijah was supposed to anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Well, we see that he hasn't done that yet. He just got Elisha anointed. And so Ben-Hadad is, is the current king still. And this is actually Ben-Hadad II. We read about another Ben-Hadad uh, a little bit earlier warring against Basha. And I know that that's a lot of meaningless mumbo-jumbo to a lot of you. And don't worry about it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Not mumbo-jumbo, though, because it's the Bible. Um, and so we have Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, and he gets 32 kings or heads of local provinces to come against Israel. And verse 2, he sent messengers into the city to Ahab. Now remember, Ahab is the most recent king of Israel that we're at, and he's the most wicked king of Israel that we've seen yet. And who's he married to? Jezebel, uh, a woman from Damascus, the Damascus area. And she's uh, one of the most wicked women that you'll read about in the Bible, slaughtering the prophets of God and leading her husband, the king of Israel, into idol worship. So here we have this husband, Ahab, the king of Israel, gets these messengers and these messengers say to him, thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. And your loveliest wives and children are mine. 
And the king of Israel answered and said, My Lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. So Ahab recognizes that if there were a bat was a battle, he'd lose. And so what can he do but say, all right, I got a lot of wives anyways. <laughs> you know, it's not really a whole lot of skin off my back. So yeah, have some wives, have some kids, have my gold and my silver. And basically, you know, we've all heard about like the, the landlords of Ireland and, you know, the people like that who would uh, really take advantage of people. They'd have to pay homage to these lords and uh, give them money and give them their wives. And if young men would marry uh, before the, the night of consummation in the marriage, the woman would, the young virgin would have to go and sleep with the landlord, you know, things like that. Just, this is a very similar situation that Ahab just like, all right, you know, we would totally lose the battle. What can I do? So it's, it's yours. Kind of a pansy, I think, but you know. Um, verse five, then the messengers came back and said, thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you saying, you shall deliver to me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children, but I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eye, they will put in their hands and take it. And so it went from, okay, let's, you know, I'll give you some of my stuff and and it went to, nope, I'm taking it all. I want all-out ownership of you, Ahab, and I want all-out ownership of your country. So it goes to the next step. And so the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. Therefore, he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king all that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, the gods do so to me and more also if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful uh, for each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. And so you see Ahab getting a little bit of courage here. And he did a very wise thing by consulting with his elders, um, a much better job than Rehoboam. You remember back in chapter, um, was it chapter 12 of first Kings when Rehoboam saw his elders rejected their advice and then went after the, the words of the young men and, um, <clears throat> And so uh, he, he speaks this very bold word. Uh, Let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. In, order, in other words, the battle hasn't happened yet. <laughs> so don't count your chickens before they hatch. You know, there will be enough time for celebration after the battle. And a um, little bit of vim and vinegar there from King Ahab. Verse 12, and it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he and the kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, get ready, and they got ready to attack the city. Suddenly, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? 
Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you. So how is God going to do it, prophet? And the prophet says, he's going to use you. And he's going to use the young people. The young people are going to accomplish it. And you're going to be the general who leads it. And man, that's just such an encouraging thing. And we're going to see these young leaders in action. But how the God, our God loves to use the young. You know, Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth because young people do stupid things. <laughs> Let's all just be honest with each other here. You know, he says, don't let people be, uh, despise your youth. Don't give them a reason to despise your youth. But he says, be an example in word and in conduct and in purity and in faith and in love. You know, don't just be a, a dumb little idiot, you know, that gives people a reason to accuse you. But be an example. Lead. And if you're what they would call a youth here, you know, got a couple high schoolers in the room. If you're a youth here, man, be encouraged. God wants to use the youth. He has a heart for the youth. He wants to use the youth in this church. When I was 14, the Lord uh, lit a revival in the high schoolers at the Calvary there in Corvallis. And I got to be a part of the revival that happened there. And uh, the Calvary, there was about 17 people meeting at a senior center. And, uh, and the, the high schoolers just started, you know, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and in boldness. And we were just handing out tracts like crazy and telling all these people about Jesus. And drug dealers were getting saved and skaters were getting saved. And, and all these people were getting saved and they'd go home and they would lead their parents to Christ. And all of these adults started coming to church because the youth got saved and went and brought their parents to Christ and started bringing their parents to church. And now the church is about 1,200 people. And there's still people that are a part of that incredible revival there today. It's a very special time that, that uh, the youth got to be used there. You know, you look at Mary and how young she was when she was chosen to be the the one that would give birth to jesus you look at david the youngest of all the brothers ruddy and good looking definitely not the one that at the first look at the first look samuel said ah this oldest brother you know he's strong and looks like a man of war looks like a king he's the one and the lord says he's not the one what about the next one he's not the one what about the next one he's not the one what about that little kid over there playing with his slingshot with red hair and freckles (laughs) He's the one. Go anoint. What? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Straight tripping. Um, and, uh, and so who, who are you gonna, who's the Lord going to use? He's going to use the young leaders of the provinces. And who will set the battle in order? He's going to use you. Isn't that incredible? Ahab, the wickedest king yet that God wanted to use him. God wanted to use these kings. He wanted them to bring him glory. And he wanted uh, Jeroboam. To, to be a man greater than Solomon. But Jeroboam wouldn't have it. And here we just see total grace. In no way, shape, or form has Ahab earned any right to get to lead a, a victorious army against the Syrians. No way. 
I mean, if I was God, I'd just be like, I'm done with you, Ahab. You know, the Syrians are going to slaughter you. But he, he gives Ahab a chance to get to be used to glorify him. And so, verse 15, he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232 young leaders, and after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. And so they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. You can't write this stuff. I mean, it's like... So they're over there, like they're getting this incredible battle plan arraigned. And back at, back at the ranch, you know, back at the command post, the king of Syria is just getting all of his military generals sloshed. So uh, verse 17, the young leaders of the provinces went out first and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol. So the young leaders are the ones that initiated the battle. I mean, this goes against everything that, you know, they should have, they should have waited they should have, you know, in, in the flesh, they should have waited and just, maybe they won't attack us. Let's not do anything. But no, they were bold in the Lord and, and the prophet told them to go out. And so they went out against all normal military logic. <clears throat> and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol and they told him saying, men are coming out of Samaria. And so here we see the words of a drunk general. <laughs> if they've come out for peace, take them alive. And if they've come out for war, Take them alive. <laughs> wait, wait. No, wait. What? Hey, don't kill anybody? <laughs> so you can see why they lost. Okay. Spoiler alert. I told you how it ended. <clears throat> Verse 19. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. So each one of these guys, they killed uh, his man, even more so actually. And uh, Ben-Hadad, who at first said, you know, he was stirring up dust by saying, there's not going to be enough dust left to get one handful. You know, now he's kicking up dust on a horse, you know, getting out of Dodge there. And so he escapes on a horse with the cavalry. Verse 21, then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. So that's the end of the first battle. And then we're going to read of another battle that, that takes place. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, go strengthen yourself. Take note and see what you should uh, do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. And, uh, then the servants of the kings of Syria said to him, their gods are uh, gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So we have uh, these false prophets speaking to Ben-Hadad saying the reason the Israelites uh, one was because of the geographical location. Their gods are the gods of the hills. And so let's get them down in the valley where all of our chariots are a lot more effective and we'll just completely slaughter them. So I don't know who supplied the Syrians with their understanding of Israel's God, but they're going to soon find out that he's not limited by geographical location. And um, so do this thing, verse 24, dismiss the kings each from his position 
and put captains in their places. So let's not let these half-hearted kings do the fighting. Let's put some military men in. Um, And you shall muster an army like the army that you've lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of that year, and you read about that a lot in Scripture. Spring was like the, the time for battle, you know, in Second uh, Samuel 11, when it was the spring of the year when the kings go out to battle, and David stayed home and didn't go to battle, and that's when he fell into sin. Was He was home alone, not a good place to be. Um, and uh, in the spring of the year, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. You know, this is exactly the odds that God likes. <laughs> you know, he loves these type of odds. He loves being outnumbered so that he can just completely conquer the opposing army and bring glory to himself you know, uh, and get Israel out of these predicaments. You know, you read about Gideon and uh, the Midianites that were tormenting Israel and God called Gideon, you know, kind of a guy who was acting cowardly, threshing wheat, you know, down in the threshing floor. And uh, the Lord called him and, and said, you know, God is with you, you mighty man of valor. And even in the midst of fear and doubt, God used Gideon. And he started out with an army of about 10,000 or so, and, and the Lord kept weeding out that army because he knew that if, if, if Gideon conquered with a big enough army, he would bring the glory on himself. Wasn't our army great? We were awesome. And so the Lord just kept saying, you've got too many people in your army, Gideon. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. And so it came down to 300 guys that he fought against the Midianites, who it says they were like the locusts in number. Just uh, more than could be numbered there. 300 men? How could there possibly be a victory? And so, you know, they, they got, you know, the Lord told them, put torches in these clay pots and, and go up on the hill at nighttime and crack the pots and start making a bunch of noise and shout out the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And you remember the story that the Midianites woke up, what's going on? Who the, you know, and they grabbed their swords and they just started swinging them around in the dark and, and they killed themselves, every single one of them. Ah! Mass hysteria. Riot-like attitudes. You don't want to have those. But, you know, the, they didn't even do anything. It's like the tank commander. Oh, we got you surrounded. You better just give up now. <laughs> you know, okay. Ah! Um, that's what the Lord does. He loves to win victories like that because in the end you're like, you did what? <laughs> it's incredibly, the David and Goliath. You know, as we've been studying the kings, we studied Abijah against Jeroboam. And how Abijah... Although he was a sinner, he called Jeroboam out on his sin. And while he was calling Jeroboam out on his sin, Jeroboam circled his army around Abijah and, uh, and surrounded him and flanked him. And yet the Lord came upon the men and, and just won the battle. And uh, we read about Asa and his little tiny army versus the million-man army of the Ethiopians. And God just completely conquered. It's no big thing for him. He just doesn't even break a sweat about it. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, you read about Jehoshaphat versus the Moabites and just how God just completely conquered. He loves it when it's like two little flocks of goats, you know. That's what the armies were like versus a whole countryside 
full of, full of an army. In verse 28, then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is God of the hills, but he's not God of the valleys. Therefore, I'll deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was that at the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. And I just found out, it's a total coincidence, I just found out um, last night that our heads have approximately 100,000 hairs. Well, Frank, sorry. (laughs) Well, you know, can't all be sort of like 100,000 hair. He knows I love him. (laughs) Mine's starting to recede a little bit, so I can't say much. Um, 100,000 hairs on our head. Can you imagine that many bodies being slaughtered? You know, by not, not only that, but by, you know, about 2,300 men. You know, that's just an incredible victory. And, and notice that they encamped there for seven days. They had a great victory. In verse 30, the rest fled to Aphek into the city when a wall fell on 27,000 men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city, into the inner chamber. So does that remind you of anything? Seven days of encamping against and then a wall falling and killing the enemy. Similar to Jericho, huh? And uh, just, it's cool how the Lord wins the battles. It's like, how are we going to get those guys in there? I'll take care of it. Um, Thanks, Lord. Send in the heavy artillery. How about a wall? Okay, that'll work. Um, Verse 31, then his servant said to him, look now, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads. And go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare our life. So they wore sackcloth around their waists and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. So sackcloth being a symbol of repentance and a penitent heart. You know, they're saying, we're sorry, (laughs) we're sorry. And then they put ropes around their neck that was just like, hey, you know, please let us live but we are so in your hands of mercy, you can hang us right now. We'll supply the rope, or you can drag us behind your horse, and we'll be your slaves. That's basically the, the picture that's there. And so they, you know, they say, please let me live. And he said, king of Israel said, is he still alive? He is my brother. Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him, and they quickly grasped at his word and said, your brother, Ben-Hadad. So he said, go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he had him come up into the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. So there's basically no consequences for for this um, attack, you know, and um, hey, let's just be best friends now. You're my brother, and you can, yeah, that's a good enough treaty, and uh, this was not the Lord's heart, as we're going to read a little bit later. Now, an interesting thing, I was reading out of a a study Bible, the ESV study Bible, let me just read this to you. It says, in another incident, 
Ahab and Ben-Hadad conspired together against an Assyrian threat from the east. A text from the Assyrian king Shalmanazar uh, described a battle he fought on the Orontes River in 853. A coalition was apparently able to halt any Assyrian advance, according to the text. Ahab the Israelite provided, and this is a quote from the text, Ahab the Israelite provided 2,000 chariots and 10,000 men to the coalition, which included Ben-Hadad II and others. The authors of Kings have not even mentioned this battle, however, because it's not relevant to their theme. Now, the, the cool thing about that is to hear of a secular outside source from you know hundreds and hundreds of miles away that went and tried to attack Israel, but, but Ahab and Ben-Hadad that we read about here teamed up and held off the advance that Assyria couldn't come against them. And so it's so cool to hear that out of secular mouths because people say the Bible is just made up and stuff. And so it's so neat to read out of the mouths of other kings proof for, for what happened. And it's just crazy that Kings doesn't write about that because um, it doesn't really matter to the text. But I found it interesting. Of course, I like history. So you can wake up now and um, we're almost done. And uh, so they made this treaty. And then verse 35 uh, you'll love this. Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophets, kind of like a, a prophet fresh out of seminary, uh, said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. So, you know, those neighbors that you have that just come over, hit me, go on, hit me. I dare you, hit me, hit me in the stomach as hard as you can. I can handle it. Go on, do it. Hit me. <laughs> Whoa, man. Whoa, back off. <laughs> He should have done it. Because verse 36, then he said to him, because you've not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. So, shucks. Probably should have hit the guy. And it's just interesting. It just reminds you of, um, you know, a couple chapters ago, the man of God and the, and the false prophet, and um, the man of God wasn't supposed to go back and go into this false prophet's house, and because he did, the lion uh, jumped him on the road and ate him, and just similar story. And, uh, and he found another man, verse 37, and said, go on, hit me, <laughs> strike me, please, put a please at the end of it. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Whoa, too hard, man, you made me bleed. Uh, inflicting the wound. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he's missing, your life shall be for his life or else you'll pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. So, you know, the prophet gets his buddy to bust him across the head. He puts a bloody bandaid on and is like, oh, I'm just coming from the battle against the Syrians. And, uh, you know, my general came and I was supposed to watch this guy. And if I didn't watch him, I'd either have to be killed or have to pay a talent. That talent was so much money. It's like, there's no way a normal soldier could pay that. And I lost the guy. What am I supposed to do? And King Ahab the king could have just pardoned the guy. Wow, I noticed that you, you've been fighting, you're bleeding. 
man, I totally pardon you. But instead he says, well, you yourself have decided your judgment. You didn't watch the guy, so I guess you're going to have to die. And, um, and so it just reminds you of the, what Jesus says, you know, the measure that you judge others, uh, you yourself are going to be judged. And so verse 41, and he hastened, he quickly took the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And then he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. You know, this was a little trick that the prophets like to play in the Old Testament. You guys remember Nathan the prophet coming in after David had slept with Bathsheba and killed Uriah the Hittite, and he said, you know, there's a man who had a little lammy, you know, and that little lamb was so precious to him, he cuddled it and snuggled with it, and it was just a little lammy, you know. And the neighbor down the road who had all sorts of sheep and a herd of sheep had a visitor come, and he snuck into the neighbor's house and took the little lammy and went and killed it and ate it. And remember, David was just livid. What? I can't believe this. Man, you need to have that guy. He needs to repay fivefold, and, and you know his life should be required of him. And then Nathan says, that's you. You're the one that stole another man. You stole Bathsheba from Uriah. He cherished her. He loved it. Shoot. <laughs> you know, confronted on his sin by this story. And that's the same thing that happens here. And... Uh, and, uh, you know, confronted by the prophet. Also, this, there's a similar thing, you know. Ahab wasn't supposed to have let Ben-Hadad go. He was supposed to have killed him. And you might be reminded of when another prophet confronted a similar king. When the prophet Samuel confronted Saul, because Saul was supposed to kill the king of the Amalekites. He was supposed to utterly wipe out Every man, woman, child, oxen, sheep, donkey, everything of the Amalekites. They were so wicked, they were to be completely and totally destroyed. But King Saul kept all of the pleasant things and kept the king. Now, I don't know what happened in the midst of that, but he wiped out all the people except the king. Years later, or a period later, who is Saul killed by? An Amalekite. Somehow he didn't completely obey the Lord and he, he was wiped out and killed by an Amalekite. And Samuel heard the bleeding of sheep and the bawling of donkeys or whatever it is that they did. And he said, you disobeyed the commandment of the Lord. Today your kingdom is ripped away from you. Long story short. In the similar situation, here's this prophet. He's saying, where's Ben-Hadad? Oh, I let him go. We made a covenant. You know, he's going to give a couple cities back and we can set up, you know, marketplaces. I think the King James Version says bazaars. So I thought Barb would like that. You know, they're going to set up bazaars there in these lands. And, um, oh, we're all good. And the prophet says, "Mm -mm. because you let this man slip out of your care, who the Lord had, he put the man into your care, you're going to die for it. And next week, we're going to read the prophets predict Ahab's death, and then we're going to hopefully, Lord willing, whatever he wants to do, finish First uh, Kings uh, by doing chapter 21 and 22 next week. So, 
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.